You're listening to Heart of the Hunter, a serialized fantasy novel set in Koronai, the magical country. The story was written and performed by Sam Chubb. For more information about this podcast, including upcoming role-playing game releases associated with this novel, check out heartofthehunter.com. Now, please enjoy Heart of the Hunter. Chapter 27 Iron Town was not a great metropolis. Aside from an area towards the center of town, nothing was behind walls. They smelled the black smoke of the Iron Town forges before they saw it on the horizon, a black stain on the northernmost plain. A patrol stopped them a mile out of town, and a fur-wrapped Arandani man rode a shaggy pony along with them, holding a pike, giving them escort all the way in to the counting station where all business traffic was supposed to come first. Though the day was gray and stormy, Factor Colesblood was far and above his normal demeanor. From grim and complaining to nearly singing Arandani opera in his relief to be at the journey's end, he rode on the drover's seat for the first time in the entire journey, giving off the air of a nobleman touring his demean. Peter spoke up to his crew. Now, you all just hold on. Not time to disperse yet. We gotta make sure what we're guarding gets warehoused. Then you can go. You hear me? Random, unfocused grunts and grumbles came back from the assembled mercenaries. The days had taken more and more out of them, and they were ready to be in out of the weather. Raven especially, who had taken to wearing both a heavy cloak, a sleeping blanket, and all of her clothing at once, though this was technically high summer in the cold wastes. The black-cloaked factors of the Fairchild Concern were charged with collecting tariffs for Iron Town, and they were thorough. Long-standing rivalry between the Prester Concern meant that there was always something, always some kind of difficulty with them. "'Where are you from? Northport?' the factor in charge of the tariffs wanted to know. "'No, Blackpool.' Jurgen said simply, but there was a wicked grin to go with it. Right. But you went by ship from Seaforth, right? To Northport. That's the only way. Nay, myself and my stalwart band of mercenaries here, we did travel the river road and lived to tell the tale. The Fairchild Factor's eyes slitted in response. To say what? Say again? What the Factor said? We're here from Blackpool, by way of the River Road, to be true, Peter said. You don't say. Well, <laughs> isn't that something? Hey, boys, the River Road's open again. Now, Josiah, make sure we take extra special careful look at this load. You never know what's coming from Blackpool. The taxmen began to crawl all over the wagon, unbuckling the load, handing boxes down to each other to sit on a pallet beside the track, all while Jurgen fumed. I'll make a report of this to the Merchants Guild. You'll be sorry. We are just exercising our due contract according to the law factor. If you have a problem with that, I suggest you take it up with the supervisor. I beg your pardon. This is a legitimate business concern. All transport taxes have been paid here, sent by letter of credit ahead of time. Note the seals, man. Aye, but what if you're carrying contraband? What then? 
some lovely dream weed, perhaps some weird drops. Or, uh, you never know, do you? The company has outlawed such things in Iron Town. Too dangerous for our citizenry. Ridiculous. Do we look like half-nailed drug runners to you? The Arandani eyed Rusk on the second wagon. Perhaps. Let's take a look, shall we? Guards, be sure that the factor here and these other roughnecks don't decide to take a run. The supervisor would not like that one bit. The door to the cell block closed, and shortly after the sound of many locks engaging left the room in total silence. They had placed the crew in separate cells as best they could, but building materials in the frontier town were somewhat scarce, and so the jail was not very big. I can't believe I've been locked up like a Vrajni criminal, Aran complained. Like you've never been pinched, Raven scoffed. This is nothing. Give me a couple of days and a sharp spoon, and I can probably dig us out of here. The Merchant's Guild will most surely be along shortly to sort this out, Jorgen said, his face red from tears barely held back. My uncle! Your uncle's a bit far away, isn't he? Peter turned on the Arandani. I don't think he even knows what we're about. Besides, this whole thing, this caravan, it's been a sham. A damn faint, isn't it? I don't know what you mean. You and yours. That was a trigate you dropped back there. I knew I'd seen something like it before, down in the crossways, the Mertz Guild. Hey, Lord's blood, man. What have you done to us? I assure you, this was a legitimate enterprise from the start, Sergeant. I certainly don't need to justify myself or anything my people do to you. But I can tell you that at no point was this a false enterprise. Yes, there were some side goals, but the cargo was logged and locked, well before you even joined us on the Galen Duchess. Whomever put that curf in there, well, when we find out, heads will roll. Raven interrupted. Don't you see? They planted the head candy. Those merchants' boxes, they're all the same. Did you see them take a box off the cart? Maybe. Did you see them do the switch? No, I didn't either. But you and I both know that's what happened. Peter scoffed. You're telling me that planted the curf in our load? Get out! Welcome to my world, Raven countered, giving Peter a big grin. Rusk tugged on Raven's arm. This mean we humped? Raven nodded. Yeah, kid, we're humped. For once I have to agree with Miss Raven, Jorgen said. There is no other reasonable explanation for this. Juicy, Aaron swore. You merchant boys are worse than a Sidalian sewing circle when you get going. Planning contraband. Yeah, that sounds like the Fairchilds, Chandra said, looking at Jorgen pointedly. Or didn't you notice that's who rules this town? Slow but sure realization dawned on Jurgen's face. The Fairchild concern? It's... Oh, you've never met a worse group of thieves and snakes. Please, Raven said. I wouldn't give them that lofty a title. 
they're hardly decent pickpockets. That planting contraband gag so old it has whiskers, Raven scoffed. That means we're being held without good reason, Peter said, looking at Jurgen. Absolutely. I swear on my... Jurgen began. Shut up. I believe you. But not because of what you say. Don't ruin it. Chandra, are you feeling any of your magic? There's hardly enough to light a candle. I'm sorry, Peter. That's okay. I think that door was made of ashwood anyway. Rusk try to break a door? Rusk asked. Peter shook his head. Don't hurt yourself, big guy. Raven, do you have any lockpicks left? Raven's eyes flared at Peter. What makes you think I do? They took all our stuff. Aaron spoke up. Do you know they could be listening? Raven shook her head. Not likely. No magic ears because of the ashwood and the stockade is very thick. There's only this room and the front room. Peter grinned. Okay, so show me the lockpick. Raven blushed, turned around so that she faced away from the wall, and then slipped a hand in the waistband of her riding breeches into a hidden pocket sewn there just for the purpose. Pulling the lockpick out of its hiding place, she held it up in the low daylight, allowing the room from slits high on the wall. Shall we? Raven said, grinning. All right, here's what we're going to do, Peter said. The door to the cage room opened and an Arandani guard stepped in. Smoke was billowing out of one of the cells and the whole room was filled with it. Jurgen was screaming. You have to let us out! This place is on fire! You have to let us out this instant! Fire is careful! Rusk called after him. The Arandani guard was surprised, waving at the smoke. Stepping forward to peer through the bars at what must be the source of the fire, he left his back undefended. Raven took two steps out of the smoke and eased the steel gate of her cage open slowly and then moved quietly and quickly to take a position behind him. Using the blunt end of one of her spirit-bound Ravenclaw daggers, she sapped him. She had to hit him twice to make him go down. Hard-headed, here's the keys, let's go, she said, tossing Peter the keys from the guard's belt. Chandra turned and dismissed the tiny fire she'd made, in the straw on the bottom of the cage, grinning to herself at how they'd fooled the guard. They slipped out of the stockade, down the hall, and around the corner to the watch commander's office. An Arandani guard posted there was asleep. Raven nodded to Alabar, and he stepped forward. Bright blessings on you, he whispered as he used his healer's talents to send the guard into deeper sleep than before. Raven took this one's keys, too, and they began the gut-richingly laborious process of discovering the proper key to the watch commander's office door. Hold on, Peter said, and aimed a kick at the door, which splintered as it gave way. That's better. The things were still splayed about the room, the commander having spent several hours going through them in order to price them. They started to go through their things, but Raven hissed at them. Amateurs! We look at the stuff later. Here, Raven said. She threw a large guard's cloak off one of the wall pegs onto the floor, and they bundled what they could into it, folding it up like a giant sack. Peter took it over his arm, but strapped on the sword and belt, and Aran seized his dracon, 
Chandra her copper ring from a small salver he'd had their jewelry in. Raven hissed the entire time, Laggards, let's get out! We're moving, let's go, people, Peter said, straining as he carried the large, ungainly bundle. A few moments later, they were out in the snow, the midnight moon shining down on them. Peter locked the door to the guardhouse behind him, then pitched the keys out into the deep snow. He's cold, Rusk said, his teeth chattering. This way, Arryn said suddenly, as he felt his geish begin to take hold. I think I know where safety lies. Arryn knocked on the door to the townhouse and waited. He knocked again, sure of the pulsing feeling he was sensing from within. The door opened, and a tall Lunargenti man in a silver tunic greeted him. His gray eyebrows and salt-and-pepper hair was impressive to Arryn, knowing how long-lived the Lunargenti were. "'I'm looking for the Silver Grove. Do you know where it may be found?' Arryn said, smiling and bowing. "'Why, right here. This is the house of a Lunargenti merchant. But we use it when we're in town. Be welcome. Is it Arryn and your gallant crew?' I've heard all about you from Corwin, who's here, by the way. Ah, and this is Bridget. She's a flutter brain, but we love her. And I'm Fairwin. But please, do come in. It's frightfully cold, and you are among friends here. And brothers, Fairwin sent to the crew through his spirit bond. They entered, and not since Tenuviel had they seen such hospitality and welcoming smiles. "'Ladies and gentlemen,' Feowen said expansively to the bards present. Hands went up from instruments, and eyes turned to face them, some with smiles on their lips, others with questions in their eyes. "'I give you those brave adventurers, those stalwart freebooters of song and story, the openers of the river road.' The applause was an uproar which took the crew by surprise. Major Hoskins walked right past the dandified, well-coiffed clerk who served as the front line of defense of the Fairchild Concerns offices in Blackpool. He strode down the hall to the corner office and pushed the door there open. A skinny Lunargenti factor was seated there at an exquisite darkwood desk, papers of accounts spread all across its shining mahogany surface. "'Excuse me, are you Baron of Fairchild?' Hoskins said quietly, politely. "'Who are you? What are you doing here? Guards!' Hoskins slammed the door to the office closed, and, producing one from his belt, thrust a spike underneath the jam. Noting the man's name on an engraved metal plate on his desk, he smiled with satisfaction. "'This won't take long at all, Mr. Fairchild,' he said, moving to the desk, sweeping aside some papers in the middle of it. "'What are you doing?' the factor cried out. Hoskins touched a tattoo of a battle-axe on his immense forearm, and, manifest in a flash of arcane light, there came a battle-axe into his hands. The axe glowed with an unearthly light, and the blade appeared preternaturally sharp. He lifted the battle-axe, grasping the handle with both hands, and began to take the desk apart. 
Surprisingly, the desk took three blows to completely split, six total to cut into four separate pieces. Papers flew in all directions, and the Lunargenti factor ran for the corner of the room, screaming a high-pitched shriek. You're a madman! Why would you do such a thing? This, Master Factor, this is a warning from the Hoskins Irregulars. If you seek to meet us on the field of battle, it's advised that you come out yourself, not send brother mercenaries to attack us. I know what you did. Next time, it won't be your desk that gets cut to pieces. Do you understand? The Factor shook with fear, but just nodded quietly. I'm glad we could come to this understanding, then, the Major said. Then he crushed a small orb in his left hand, which began to glow blue-white, and he promptly vanished, gone even before the last paper hit the floor. It was at that point, with guards hammering on the door to try and open it, that the Factor realized that he'd need a change of clothing in order to continue with his day. The return trip from Irontown to Blackpool was as humdrum and uneventful as the trip up to Irontown had been exciting. Some hotly scribed letters back and forth between Jurgen, his uncle, and various other important Arundani soon solved the problem of the arrest by proving that he had carried sealed boxes and that they had been inspected by Blackpool officials before they left. It wasn't long after that that the presser concern paid the reduced fine for improper securing of materials and clear Jurgen's good name, which allowed the factor to prospect for Irontown trade goods to bring to Blackpool. Two weeks later, Jurgen had two full wagons and was ready to go. Chandra signed on as crew to replace Arun, who had begged for and received permission to stay with the Silver Grove. Jurgen grumbled about giving Arun full pay, but in the end relented. With Alibar's help, Chandra got her assurance payment and sunk it into a Merchant's Guild account. She had a letter of credit sent forward to Blackpool so she could pick up her money there and keep it safe on the road back. Both Alibar and Raven stayed on as crew as well. Both felt that it would behoove them to keep moving so that their respected hunters wouldn't catch up with them. On the day they were due to leave Irontown, Arun came to say goodbye to Chandra. Arun, I'm surprised to see you. I thought the bards had taken you away already. No, not yet. Although, their training has already begun. It's a good thing I listened to my uncle Gamaz and learned the loony ways of notes. Imagine the idea of actually writing a song down. Preposterous. But I came to say goodbye to the crew. Well, they're just through here, eating in the common room, and I... Chandra, I wanted to say something to you first, Arn said. She turned to look into his eyes and nodded slowly. Okay, what? I'm... Uh, I'm going to miss you, Arn said softly. Well, yes, but, uh... You'll be back, won't you? You'll go and do whatever you have to do, and then... It'll be several years, Chandra. 
not time I expect anyone would wait, especially not for me. Aaron, I don't know what you mean, Chandra said quietly, looking into his eyes and asking him to explain himself without using words. Just that. Just don't wait for me, Aaron said. Chandra shook her head softly. No, I won't. And I don't know what I would be waiting for if I did. Aaron sighed. I have to say it, don't I? Damn this geish. You're going to make me say it. Chandra nodded softly. If you want to say something, say it, Arn. Arn cleared his throat and nodded. I care for you, Chandra. I don't want you to forget me. Chandra nodded. I care for you too, Arn. Probably more than I should. You're Velisti. You're never going, shh, Cariath, shh. There's never been a Velisti who studied music with the loony bards, either. Are you so sure, Arn? About the gypsy bard thing? Not so certain, but about your feelings. You seem to feel that way about a lot of people. Arn grinned. The flute doesn't love the music any less, for all that it only passes through the pipe. I don't govern my heart, so she in. I just try to realize when it changes course. So she in? What does that mean? Beloved, Arn said. Are you? Are you going to kiss me goodbye, so she in? Chandra asked quietly. Aaron answered her without words as he embraced her and did just that. Instead of taking the Lunargenti road back, the crew was able to ride back along the more direct route of the Iron Town to Blackpool track, which would lead directly to the River Road. Raven and Peter were sorry they wouldn't get to see House Tenuvial again, but were happy to be completing the trip, finally. The road south was nearly free of nail tongues and held none who were interested in a fight. By the time they reached the headwaters of the Halas River, they were near to exhausted. So seeing the Galen Duchess waiting on the bank pretty as you please was like a miracle to them. Captain Blackston explained that the way was clear for him to come north and that they should have a lovely float downriver. Rusk and Dov grew to be quite a team, and by the time they returned, Rusk not only knew enough trade to get around, but was ready to stand for the verbal exam to get into the Teamsters Union. They quickly loaded the heavy wagons on the riverboat, and the captain called cast-off lines. After that, it was riding downriver on a beautiful barge, with cool breezes and no worries about attacks from bandits or rat lizards. It wasn't long until they passed by the busy bee, which had clearly begun repairs with a lively bunch of Sidalians who waved at them as they passed. Making it back to Blackpool was both a relief and a fear for most of the crew. Raven still wondered whether the Quadong Nightwalkers were going to show up to kill her, but she soon found that her arm guard helped immensely in keeping hidden if she wanted. In turn, she helped Alabar find a safe house until he was ready to move on, for they had seen hounds of the light 
moving through the marketplace. Alibar didn't know whether the hounds were looking for him specifically, but definitely did not wish to be discovered by them. Raven found him one of her hiding spots to lay low in, and he was reasonably safe. Chandra fingered the Starmoon badge on her cloak with pride. The badge enabled her to sell her services as a wizard to anyone with coin to pay, and provided her with a certain level of protection and assistance should she need it. But more importantly, it let her walk freely through the gate in Starmoon District into the most magically oriented part of Blackpool. The wizard at Starmoon House who administered the test needed to give her the badge was surprised at her power level and knowledge especially potent as it was for one so young. He grinned when he said that it was as though someone was just feeding her the answers. Chandra just smiled. Not even the house wizard had seen the Farwarian mentor, Raven's mentor, glowing from within her forehead, her third eye. Which was just as well, Chandra thought. It was a secret after all. The act of placing it inside of her own head had been somewhat disturbing, but her spirit guide, Lanwin, had helped her assimilate what was happening. Just be sure and give it back. I may want to use it, Raven warned her, just before placing it into her palm. It was the first time Raven had ever truly trusted someone outside herself. The crew had been able to claim payment as soon as the caravan wagons had been delivered to the docks, but it took a little while for them to get settled and collect their pay officially from the Prester Concerns offices. Raven vanished with hers into the city's underbelly. Chandra used hers to pay for practice space and buy some things she hadn't known since she'd lived with her father, new clothes and shoes and some of Michigan perfume oil. Peter took his earnings from the trip and immediately went to the offices of the Honorable Old Masters on the street of the Three Ponds. I'm here to pay a debt. Steber Colpon's debt, Peter said, putting a large burlap bag full of Blackpool tokens down on the countertop. I'm sorry, sir. I'm going to have to refuse payment, said the half-nailed-tongue clerk in the cashier's cage, after a considerable amount of searching through various tomes of accounts. Oh? Why's that? My money no good or something? You just want to make an example out of me? Peter asked, eyeing the guards who were standing by the front door. No, sir, it isn't that. Your account is marked paid. Paid? Pa pa paid by whom? I don't know, sir. A courier from the Mercenaries Guild came with payments yesterday. That's all this says. Ah, yes. Here's your scrying focus, sir. We'll no longer be needing it, she said, handing Peter the small parchment envelope with his father's hair in it. Unless you'd like to borrow a new sum, the clerk asked, smiling. Thank you, uh, but no thanks, he said, dumbfounded, and turned to go, making his way across town to the Mercenaries Guild. He went to the membership desk and checked for messages. In his message box he had many letters from his family, and Tessa had sent him a book of Lunar Genti love poetry. 
and one note with a baronial seal on it. The seal looked like a stag, embossed with a heart that radiated lines out from it. After glancing over his family's letters to make sure everyone was all right, he broke the seal on the fine Lunargenti envelope and read the message within. Sir Peter, I hope this note finds you well. Please accept my gift as a token of my esteem for your service and my affection for your family. One must never allow the darkness to gain a foothold in one's life. And I hope your family will never again turn to the masters for financing seed money. If you have need, I'm certain that my factor in the Prester concern can give you very good rates. Until then, I remain your friend, His Excellency, the Baron Hunt Creek, Green Ward, Kenhill, Tanuvia. P.S. Say hello to Raven for me. P.P.S. Don't forget your promise to be my marshal. The post awaits you. Peter grinned to himself, put away his messages and the book. He was still smiling when he went to go check the job board, paying special attention to anything that might take him back to Lunargenti lands. The black scroll landed on the stone table in the circle of tree-keepers. Deathbear, the warder of the ways in the circle, shook his head to see it. A foul thing, its very presence noisome to any who serve the land. This is what I took from Ulin, Kenhill said. It does not bode well for us. How can you know for certain she even understood it? Selene, another tree-creeper with long, snowy white hair, asked. And whom could she have taught any knowledge gained? She understood enough to shape her body, to create new life, to transform others. She didn't trust anyone enough to take them as a student. But she would have gone further had the Prester concern not put a stop to it, Kennel said. So you think that this is the work of the betrayer? Deathbear asked, his eyes hooded. Kennel nodded. Yes. There is only one person who could have given her this page from the Book of Black Annie. One person who has all the other pages, the pages he stole from Oakhold. We thought him dead, Selene said simply. Is it not so? I now have reason to suspect he's not dead. The one named Taren, my former Green Ward brother, is dead, yes. But what if, well, what Taren became, that still lives. The circle parted briefly as the Archmage Phobius stepped forward. Leaning on his cane, he appeared just as old and frail as he always did, but his eyes were now lit with a fire and an urgency. Yes, Green Ward, your brother Tavern is no longer, but his successor Nistress has just been named Archmate of Night. And now, most assuredly, the balance is threatened. Selene turned to her Green Ward. Kinhill, do you have a team ready to deal with him? Some folk... Flexible and potent enough, but trustworthy to deal with a threat of this kind? Kenhill smiled. He thought for a moment, the smile breaking out slowly over his face. 
Why, yes, mistress. I nearly think I do. You've been listening to Heart of the Hunter, a Coronai Chronicles story. Heart of the Hunter is brought to you by the Fireheart Foundry family of podcasts. Fireheart Foundry also produces Fledgling, a Leaden Universe science fiction novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. The Bears Grove Podcast. Dragonkin, the podcast for kids and gaming. The Square One Podcast. And Vibrant Living. Find out more about the Fireheart Foundry at fireheartfoundry.com. This podcast is brought to you under a Creative Commons attribution, no derivatives, no commercial use, license 2.5. Music is provided by the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening, and we invite you back to our fire real soon.